Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to the Primate Cast. The release date for today's podcast is Saturday, April the 30th, 2016. This being the 42nd in our podcast series, Climbing, Climbing. And on this podcast, I'm incredibly pleased to be able to present an interview that I did about three weeks ago with Dr. Michael Huffman. So Mike is Associate Professor in the Section of Social Systems Evolution, the Department of Ecology and Social Behavior here at the Primate Research Institute of Kyoto University. And I guess you could probably say he's a pretty rare breed for many reasons, not least of which being for the fact that he started coming to Japan and working in Japan way back even in his undergraduate days, doing part of his undergraduate studies in Japan and then um, resuming with the graduate program at Kyoto University's Laboratory of Physical Anthropology in the Department of Zoology. And so in the interview, we kind of do a deep dive into the experiences that Mike's had both in and through Japan and how they've shaped who he is. And on the flip side of that, how who he is actually allowed him to just fit right into here in Japan and the way things were done, the way academics were done, um, which really just facilitated his development here. And of course, we talk about a lot of the work that he's been um, been doing here since he's arrived. Now, Mike is probably best known in the world of primatology, um, not only for perhaps being one of, or if not, if not the friendliest person in primatology, but also, of course, his uh, extensive work in self-medication in chimpanzees, especially in African great apes, and also um, behavioral traditions, uh, the main example being stone handling in macaques. But I think what perhaps comes out most in the interview is uh, is Mike's humanity. And, and for those of you who don't know, um, Mike was my PhD advisor. I started back in 2007, and we don't really get into that too much, uh, aside from alluding to it in the first few minutes of the interview. But I remember as an undergrad uh, and graduate student back in Canada, in Calgary, thinking that, you know, Mike's work, when I'd read it, I'd read it quite often, and I was really interested. Uh, he was one of the few that was kind of combining work on parasites uh, and behavioral ecology of primates, and that was something that just really struck me, and I, you know, I was trying to find ways to do that as an undergraduate student uh, through field schools, um, even as I proposed that for my master's thesis, but of course, where I was, there just wasn't really any, um, any of that work going on, and really no expertise in the department for that, so uh, you know, I kind of put it on, on the back burner there, but I just always wanted to get back to that. And so in the interview, Mike talks about kind of helping people out with their dreams. And, and, you know, he, it was really true for me because when I ended up here in Japan for other purposes, while on a, a teaching hiatus from, from academics, you know, I, I made a point of meeting Mike. I knew he was here. I knew about Kyoto University's Primate Research Institute. And, you know, I just came down and we talked about the possibilities. I gave a seminar and I'll never forget the first, it was the first time I met him. Basically, we came into his office after my seminar and, you know, we sat down at his desk and the first thing he said after looking at me was, so when are you going to come back? And for me right there, it was, you know, okay, that's it. This is not going to be if I come back. It's, it is definitely when, so I didn't know, but it wasn't that much longer till uh, I actually ended up here. So, and then Mike was great. So I think that, you're the kind of guy he is, um, and of course, the work that he was doing just was a perfect fit for me. And so, I hope that you know this kind of relationship we've been able to develop over the past decade plus also really comes out in the interview. And it's funny that you know Chris Martin and I, when we started this podcast, Mike was supposed to be one of our very first interviews because you know, we both really liked him, we get along, and also he does really interesting things, and he's an interesting guy. And so we knew that people would want to hear uh, from him. But it was one of those things also where. 
okay, he's just right next door, so we can do an interview anytime. And then anytime actually turns out to be four, four years later. Uh, so it's a bit of a shame, but the good thing is, in the interview, we since we focus so much on the kind of person he is and what he likes um, to do, and especially mentoring students and you know interacting with people, we didn't talk too much about his research, so we'll definitely be able to get him back in the studio in the near future, and I'll try and hit him up on those finer points of what he's doing. But in the meantime, I think everybody will really enjoy this interview, so I'll just stop talking here. Here we go. Yeah, so as I was saying, I, I don't really know how to conduct a proper interview with you since <laughs> our involvement goes back quite a ways now. Quite a ways now. How, when did it start? What year Well, did I you contact me? I contacted you probably in 2004 when I was Four, here yeah. as an English teacher. And then yeah. like more 2005, than 10 years ago. more than 10, yeah. I came here when there, we had the, the World Expo in Aichi. Ah, or something really kind of and yeah. i spent a couple of days there and then oh, okay. popped up here ah right right yeah to give a talk yeah that was when you were one of the last mohicans with your mohawk <laughs> i think that was a little bit later later <laughs> but i mean ah, that was right. when i first came as a student right, yeah, in right, 2007 right. Yeah. as i said the uh i don't remember the what the acronym stands for but JASO, the japan Associ students association or something that hmm. connects with mombu show hmm. people when they give the scholarships they set you up with a bit of pocket money so i hmm. had to use that to buy a balikan uh, <laughs> shaver <laughs> to get rid of that before i arrived at kyoto <laughs> university proper uh, to be your student good idea well to be my student and to shave off your mohawk <laughs> <laughs> knowing you now i mean it probably would have been better to keep it <laughs> <laughs> or at least wouldn't have been a, a detriment to me, I guess, right. at the time. But I don't yeah. know about everybody else. Yeah. yeah. So that's kind of how I came here. But then you've been in Japan now for, what, 35 plus years? 37 years coming up in January. Yeah. Yeah. Came in 1978 in January. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And what was, uh, I mean, how did that come about? Why Was it something that you were interested in, Japan or... Um, I guess I had always had a connection with Japan, but I didn't really think of it as a motivating factor to, for me to come to Japan. Mm -hmm. My first babysitter, I think, was a Japanese woman. She was in Denver because her husband was working for Sumitomo Bank. And um, I must have thought she was pretty cute. <laughs> I was like four or five years old. The reason old, for so many poor and <laughs> good decisions, I suppose. <laughs> And um, my first buddies outside of the house, you know, like from kindergarten, were two Japanese American, well, mm. three, two Japanese American families, Dick and, and Gary and um, Richard. And, um, you know, I just, you know, always had this, this connection with Japanese people, but I didn't really connect it with Japan. My mind was in Africa since I was like three or four years old. Mm -hmm. My mom would read me Curious George and, um, she tells me that I told her one day, one evening when she was reading the, the story to me, that when I grow up, I'm going to Africa and live with chimpanzees. And it wasn't until like 20, 23 years later when I actually came back from my first um, field trip to Mohale that she told me that I had said that when I was done. I go, what the, wow, <laughs> I'm really stubborn. You know, I had to keep my... My, my statement from four years old until I did it. <laughs> is, that, is that something that you could actually, if you think back, can remember? Or is it just one of those, those things that your, you know, your parents would have told you and you just kind of run with? I, I, I have one from my childhood. My mom always tells me that, and she repeats the story numerous times, mm -hmm. that when, we were, when I was about that age as well, 
it was a cold, brisk autumn day in Winnipeg, and we were walking outside. She was a university student at the time and um, asked if my hand was cold. And I said, nope, warm is the inside of a whale's mouth. (laughs) 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 Not something that I could actually remember, although I wish I did. And now have you put your hand in a whale's mouth? Um, You know, I haven't. Uh, Closest I got so far is a penguin. but (laughs) In his mouth? (laughs) Well... You're collecting fecal samples, maybe the other end. The other end, right, yeah. <laughs> Sometimes you get back, you know, mixed up a little bit. <laughs> but, so apart from living with chimps, though, I mean, you, working with primates also was something that started yes. really early. Yeah, yeah. My, I, I went back and looked in my high school yearbook and my junior high school yearbook not too long ago when I was back visiting the folks and people were writing Monkey Mike, hey, and in 20 years you'll be in, in the jungle with monkeys, I just know it, you know. yeah. That's where I went, <laughs> via Japan. And it's very important, I think, that I went to Japan. It all happened very opportunistically at the university that I was enrolled in in Colorado, Fort Lewis College. Um, I had gotten there, actually, in high school through a summer ecology anthropology program. We spent three weeks down in Durango, Colorado, mm-hmm. in Fort Lewis. Beautiful campus on, on top of a mountain, surrounded by gorgeous mountains, Deserts not too far away, and a very rich indigenous culture. Um, very a, a number of different tribes: the um, the Hopi, the Ute, the Apache. Many in in that southwest corner part of of, of Arizona, Colorado, Utah, and Nevada. Um, very rich culture, and we had spent half of the time studying the people's culture, and the other half studying ecology. And I said, wow, this is the place I want to spend my <laughs> college years, being in, in the mountains with this, this rich environment. So it was enrolling in that university in my last year of high school that got me the ticket, the invitation to come to Japan for a, a, a study abroad program for mm-hmm. three months. We'd be there for three months here for three months, and we would get like almost a year's credit because we had really intensive courses in mm-hmm. Japanese and in history and all kinds of things about Japan. So I said, hey, yeah, why not? So I, you know, with, with it, uh, at the same time, I was planning on going to Africa, you know, this, this dream. And so I had studied German in high school for three years, thinking I would go to the roots of, to the, the home of ethology and, mm-hmm. and study with people who have studied with Conrad Lawrence and those guys, and then try and work my way to Africa that way, either in wildlife biology or mm-hmm. ethology. So I had this huge catalog of all of the possibilities of studying abroad in Europe mm-hmm. and arrived the same day that this one letter, one thin letter from Fort Lewis College said, you're accepted, congratulations, and by the way, we have this program where we, can, we, we take a group of seven or eight people to Japan for six months. You have a three-month course, and you, you can spend the next three months, summer break, traveling around mm-hmm. Japan and experiencing things. And it was like, I don't even remember opening up that big fat catalog from mm-hmm. Europe. It was just this one-page letter <laughs> from Japan was burning in my hands. And by the end of the day, I said, Mom, I don't care what it takes. I'll, I'll take another job. I'm going. I've got to go. And Mom said, well, we'll talk to your father. And I convinced him, and and there you go. There it, I go. It's yeah. interesting because Chris and I on this podcast have talked about how um, we feel like 
coming to Japan for study is it's such an under kind of underutilized or underrepresented mm. um, pathway for people from especially from the West. Mm. Yet there are so many opportunities here. As yeah. I mean, as you you took full advantage of and kind of changed mm. the landscape. I think for at least within the Primate Research Institute in Kyoto mm. University for for foreign faculty uh, eventually ending yeah. up here. Even so. for foreign students, there was mm-hmm. there was when I first started there would. There were a few people from Africa, many people from China, um, but no one from the U.S., no one from Canada. Mm-hmm. If they were, they were studying Japanese literature mm-hmm. or haiku or something, but just, just for a short time. No one would think of coming to Japan for graduate school. Yeah, And I came over as an undergraduate and started undergraduate studies here as well so but i i like to do things that no one else is that that not (laughs) everyone else is doing right so it seemed like like the big adventure and 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 something to take advantage of and and at the same time and maybe uh, there still may not be that many people that realize it but through kyoto university i mean you had access to so many primatology field sites in africa as well so even today japan has probably the, the most at least the largest percentage from any one country Right. It runs, for example, sites on great apes. Right, mm. right. It's yeah. really impressive. Yeah. When I first got to Japan, and it was meeting Professor Kawaii and Itani, that I, I realized what the Japanese were doing with primates. And mm-hmm. I said, this is why I came. You know, all of a sudden, one day, all of the stars aligned, and I could just step from one to the next, and it went right to Japan. Mm-hmm. And the next hop was Africa because what these guys were doing and we connected in so many ways on individual levels personal levels but just to see what they were doing mm-hmm. all around the world I said you know, that, that burning piece of paper in my hand all of a sudden really made sense mm-hmm. and um, I've never looked back mm-hmm. yeah, it's been great so what was that like coming in? I guess you came into the Laboratory of Human Evolution Studies in right. Kyoto University. I, I don't know if it was still called that at that time. Then it was the Laboratory of Physical Anthropology. Mm-hmm. Professor okay. Jiro Ikeda, a um, physical anthropologist, was the professor, and it, Professor Junshiro Itani was associate professor. Mm-hmm. And um, then half of the half of the students and postdocs were studying hunter gatherers mm-hmm. in Africa, the Kunsang, the Mbuti, the Mbaka, um, a lot of hunter gatherers as well as pastoralists in um, Kenya in, in northern Kenya, the Samburu, the Rendile, um, Turkana. So our our seminars were so rich. We'd hear people from people studying mountain gorillas, Yamagiwa-san mm-hmm. studying mountain gorillas, people on Yakushima studying Japanese macaques people studying chimps, orangutan, and then this whole other world of, of, of people, of, of human studies. But we were smack dag in the middle of the faculty of science <laughs> in the department of zoology. I don't think there's any other place in the world that has that mm-hmm. openness, that, that line of communication mm-hmm. with all the other disciplines. And the Japanese, frankly, were doing all of these things with whatever field they were interested in. The botanists, which, of course, had to study about the people and how they used the plants. Mm -hmm. But Professor Itani would always tell us, you know, monkeys aren't their own universe. They're connected with everything else, Mm -hmm. people, plants, everything. So don't miss anything. Just just take it all in and write down what you see. And Mm -hmm. the first thing he told me, and I think he's he's telling all of his students this, because I've heard other people say it, you know, it says, 
if you want to understand monkeys, you've got to be a monkey. So first, just be the be the monkey, you know. And so that's what I did. I ran up to Arashiyama and slept on the mountain, and whatever they put in their mouths, I put in my mouth. And I didn't have <laughs> for better or for worse. I, nothing, nothing bad happened. Out okay. of it. I was I was pretty hungry in those days. I didn't have a lot of money, so <laughs> I would I would take potatoes and apples and things out of the the bin that they would be feeding the provision monkeys at Arashiyama right. as a snack. And I'd take them to the, <laughs> the cabin at night and fry them up. And, yeah, Never got into trouble with the alpha monkeys there? No, <laughs> no. <laughs> One of the keepers got angry, though. He said, that's monkey food, you can't pick that. <laughs> <laughs> Are you paying for this? <laughs> but the director said, no, that's fine, he's cool. <laughs> <laughs> Special privileges for the primatologist. Right. Yeah. Oh, he like, took really good care of me. I was, like I said, I didn't have much much money. I was teaching English to make a living. And the first six months after I left homestay, I was staying in friends' apartments. I would rotate every day. I was, I was a hunter-gatherer myself, basically. And I'd, I'd move from one place, wherever the food was, I'd move. And, and I, I lived out of a knapsack for about a year mm-hmm. and finally saved money my own apartment. But until then, I was pretty mobile. Mm-hmm. So just jumping ahead of... Because I see kind of a, a a thread here when you talked earlier about the the field school that you got offered in Durango, mm-hmm. where you got to do things about the indigenous people and also the the, mm-hmm. the science, and then Kyoto University's uh, physical anthropology lab, mm-hmm. the primatology, but also um, the human studies, mm-hmm. and then I just go out and say like what you became most known for uh, around that time or shortly after that time was doing almost exactly the same thing. So mm. <laughs> with the whole self-medication story that right. emerged there. And so right. you were, as you just said, you were interested in the primates, also the plants, the ecology, and then the human side of things. So mm. was that, I mean, was that all just always there from the beginning or how did that, that part of your work come about? Was it somehow planned, somehow serendipitous? None of it was ever planned. I had all kinds of ideas and all kinds of things that I started out to do in each site at Arashiyama and at um, Mahale. But the ones that have lasted as long as they have, all these projects were based on just seeing what the animal is doing and something that's so out of the ordinary for their their normal life must be something special for them. Mm -hmm. So trying to understand what's special about it for them and then putting that into the context of, of primatology, what's special about it in our discipline? Um, stone handling, um, mate choice. When I started studying mate choice, um, I think Fred Berkovich and I were one of the very few who were looking at that topic in mm-hmm. wild primates. And most, most of the, the theories were all focused on males and, mm-hmm. and dominant males. But I, you know, in my effort to become the monkey, I would... <laughs> follow the females and see what they were doing and just wait a minute it. to become the monkey and follow the females <laughs> Japanese <laughs> Japanese macaque females I would I would look at what they were doing because I'd read all the papers about male dominance and how that determined um, priority of access to females and all of this but I wasn't seeing that mm-hmm. because I was following the females and seeing what they were doing and you know you'd see these these big big brass alpha males come in and ch- chase the male away or chase the female away and then people would stop there and say, oh, yeah, that, that, that confirms the hypothesis. So it's happening the same thing in this species. But that's not how I was trained. That's not how I thought. So I followed what happened afterwards. Mm-hmm. I said, well, how come no one has followed what happens afterwards? So those kinds of things. It's just, just an interest taking it beyond 
what's written in the textbooks or in, in, in the papers of the day, I found something different. Mm -hmm. um, stone handling as well. It's just out of the blue one day, this this young female, Glant, 64, 76, had a couple of rocks and she brought them out to the middle of the feeding area. Um, and she started playing like it was blocks, like like, like a young kid. So I, I snapped a few photos and jotted it down, but I didn't see anything for another six months. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't until three years, two and a half, three years later when I came back again, it had already spread to 80% of the of the troops. So I, I, I followed that. You know, I, I took this story back to Professor Itani and he said, Keep keep an eye on that. You know, might might be important. <laughs> so I just dived into it, and it was kind of like like a side project while I was doing the mate um, choice stuff. Then my first trip to Mahale, um, the same thing. I had this plan. I was going to study the the role of aged individuals in the group because we only had a few um, adult old age chimps, and this, it's been a long time since mm -hmm. that condition was at Mahale or anywhere really so I thought that was a good thing to look mm -hmm. at so I was looking at adult females and old adult females and adult males and old adult males and trying to understand the role of adults within the group but one day we just I was with Mohammedi a, a, um, a, a tracker and long-term member of, of the, the research team there and saw this chimp Chaosiku pick up this plant that I'd never seen her eat before. And because Mohammedi is a traditional healer, he would tell me about plants. I was always interested in what, what the people were doing with mm -hmm. the plants. And I had had some experience in high school with shaman from Southwest. <laughs> so I was really interested in, in that area. And I, a textbook in high school was was um, Carlos Castaneda's Journey to Exalt Land. Mm. Um, and uh, some wild things went on in those books. So I was interested and I was, I was aware of, of that that part of, of traditional culture so I guess medicinal plants were always mm -hmm. something of, on, on my mind um, but again it was just by accident but it seemed so intriguing and so many coincidences how it matched with what people were doing so I, 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 I ran with that and that's been something that, that's been um, on my mind and I've been working you know that that program has expanded Mm -hmm. throughout the years to many different species and everything but there's there's this this connection you know it started with mate choice and then stone play and then self-medication right sex drugs rock and roll <laughs> 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 it was all all purely innocent and well you, you definitely are a rock star <laughs> <laughs> if nowhere else in the field of primatology for mm -hmm. sure <laughs> mm -hmm. but you know it's just it's it's really wild how all these things happen. You know, as a boy, I, I dream of writing books. You know, I, I would copy down pages from an encyclopedia for high school. No, for this is as, as a grade school student for reports or projects. And I says, "Wow, someday I want to write an encyclopedia. I want to write a book." You know, I was just intrigued by masses of information, mm -hmm. not just getting it from someone else, but I wanted to to make some. Mm -hmm. So I was always really interested in in that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And that, I mean, it seems like you're interested in, in everything. So and that's kind of reflected in how busy you are in yeah. I mean, <laughs> your travel schedule throughout the year. Mm. Um, so I recently we had Colin Chapman in here. Right. Um, and in some ways, I see a lot of kind of parallels in, in you know, the stuff that yeah. not only the stuff that you've doing, but also personalities and, mm. and that. And, and I asked him, I mean, how he kind of manages to be that busy. And I guess I can put the same question to you. I mean, mm. you obviously love what you're doing, mm. which is, I think, the first thing. 
but and how do you keep up with it? And well, I have I have a lot of time to do it because I don't have a job. I haven't haven't worked <laughs> a day in my life. <laughs> if this is work, man, uh, they got to change the definition. It's too good. <laughs> um, well, you just always do things. You know, mm-hmm. you, you. I don't know. I'm just always. I'm interested in everything. I'm interested in people. I like to help people with a dream because so many people help me with my dreams. And I know what it's like to have a dream and not have things happen as you would like, and you know. But you just keep moving forward, and then somewhere, sometimes someone comes into your life and they they make things happen. They they help you get take take make this decision to go left or right on the road, and mm-hmm. and if you keep making the decisions close to your heart, then you you end up being where you want to be, and that's that's what I keep telling. Um, younger people who who come to me and say, "Well, I, I love your job. How did you get that? Well, <laughs> I, I want to do the same thing." And I said, "Well, if you want to keep at it, don't give up. Don't don't let setbacks be the end of of the road." So when 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 someone approaches me with with a question or they, something they want to do, I can feel pretty quickly if if they really feel it if, if that fire is burning inside and if they're really sincere and they really you know they, they have a dream like I had I still have many then I, I want to help them because I'm I'm in a place now in a position now where I, I can help people and I wanted to use that in a positive way mm-hmm. for the discipline for people's lives and in the end you know it just feels good to help to see someone else feel good and that comes back to you and I think it extends your life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so uh, I suppose in the last decade or so, um, you've really gotten involved in uh, in anthropology and primatology being done in a part of the world, mm. uh, including India, Sri Lanka, Bangladesh, more recently Nepal. Mm. So how did, how did that also come about? I mean, it's kind of a long way from Africa and, and Japan, but... Yeah, um, well... You you also often say that you know in a previous life you were Indian. So. Oh, definitely. Yeah, <laughs> I, I even got the head wobbled down. If, for those of you listening, there it's looking pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> I think, well, you know, part of my wonderlust, my my desire to 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 go to places, again goes back to when I was in grade school. I would look at the clouds, see them moving across the sky, or I'd look at the mountains, the Rocky Mountains. I could always see from the the kitchen window I'd help my mom wash the dishes or whatever and I could see these mountains and I said god I want to stand on top of those mountains or see those clouds what who else is seeing those somewhere else you know and we had people uh, that that came in to my life in different ways at school or visitors or whatever from other countries and I really admired the the, the effort that they put in to, to adjust to the culture and the country where I lived where I grew up and I wanted to do the same mm. somewhere. But I always had this feeling that I had come from somewhere else. And before I knew what past lives were, I had, you know, I, I tell my mom what I did when I was a, an old man. I guess my older brother and my younger brother had the same stories. When mm-hmm. they were old man, they did this. But I can close my eyes and still see things. <laughs> I don't know where they came from. Um, you know, whether we really have memories of past lives or it's just related to something that influenced subconsciously it doesn't matter it's a great feeling and it's 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 like a vehicle for 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 moving ahead and 
by having feeling a connection with people in different parts of the world it makes the world smaller and more comfortable to move around in but I just love people and mm -hmm. everyone has an interesting story and and when you meet enough people and from different places you realize that that you know they all have so much to offer and they have so much capacity to do different things it's just conditions what not that have changed over history that make it more difficult for some people than others where they were born makes it more difficult and i've always when I first came to Japan, everyone said, well, I study Japanese. No one's going to study Japanese. You know, <laughs> only the Japanese speak that language. I said, well, yeah. But I, I learned very quickly that there's a lot of people coming to, Af to Japan who didn't speak English, mm -hmm. but they spoke Japanese. So I could speak to a whole other group of people mm -hmm. in Japanese because that was a common language. Um, so, you know, as, as the world changes, languages gain or lose importance. But that was, I think, one of the lessons that one of the eye openers for me is how I changed as a person by acquiring another language. Your, your personality changes mm -hmm. and, and it really expands how you can look at a situation or a problem. And I think it's really important for science as well, because not all science is born in the West. Not all science is from Harvard. Mm -hmm. You talk to people in different places and you know everyone has their own perspective, the cultural background, their there are mentors, background, all these different things come into play. And there's such a lot of things out there that we all can learn from each other. Mm -hmm. So traveling around and, and lecturing in these different countries and mentoring students and, and learning from, from so many people, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's, I wish I could have 10 more lives in the future, <laughs> this life, you know, there's right. just so, so much to do, so much to learn. Right. Yeah. Do, you, do you think that, um, I mean, maybe it's kind of coming out during this interview, but do you think that having come to Japan um, at the young age that you were and, you know, studying here and kind of developing in primatology here, do you think that the system, the way things were kind of done here in Kyoto at the time, I mean, that was really the second generation of um, Japanese primatologists, let's say. Right. So Itani was your supervisor. Right. But do you feel like that the way that things were done here was kind of more suitable for, I don't know, just who you are or how you would like to see things done? Or? Oh, definitely. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Um, just just at that time now, I think more more people think the same way. But I, I remember in high school, the year that I graduated, I went to the Caribbean. I was working, well, I, I was, I, I, I paid some money on this um, International Training Ex Institute, in, in, International Expedition Training Institute. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like Earthwatch today. Um, and I was able to go to the small island in the Caribbean and um, look at some vervet monkeys r running around in the, on the island. Um, people from the University of Los Angeles had a, an ongoing study on serotonin in captive vervet monkeys, so they were doing lab work but you know the, the money that that the volunteers like myself gave them allowed us to spend time on the island and, and look at the, the monkeys in the wild and I wanted to try and, and observe the monkeys there in in captivity as well to kind of combine things to do something so I, I wanted to study individual personalities mm -hmm. and, and 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 whatnot and 
the guy who is looking after us, is says, oh, he kind of laughs at animals <laughs> don't have personalities. You know, right. And I, I, growing up with with dogs and cats and all, all kinds of animals, I, I couldn't believe he was saying that. Mm-hmm. But when I came to Japan, it's like, of course they have personalities. Everyone's different. That's what we're studying. We're mm-hmm. studying their history to understand how their social organization is. And it was just like overnight, I said, these guys got it. I, This is my head clicks in the same mm-hmm. way. And um, when I met Professor Itani, I had had an appointment to talk for like 30 minutes or so. And we ended up speaking for three hours. <laughs> and, you know, it was just like, this is the guy I, I've been waiting to talk to. Mm-hmm. And, you know, at that point, it's just, it actually, at, at that time in 1979, when I met him in August, I said, I'm staying in Japan. Mm. My, this is where my bones will be buried, and my ashes, part of them will be spread. <laughs> the more places I go, the more places I put on my list for where right. part of me is. So someone's going to be spread. busy when that happens. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> Just um, kind of going back to the, the research a little bit. So mm. when I want to go to Mahalai first and then come back to the Japanese mm. macaques and then we can we can start to close out. But mm. um, just when when the the observations uh, that led to the discovery of self medication, mm. that was a you know quite a, a big story that broke. Um, so what was that like when I mean was it something when you first saw it and you started putting this work together that you knew was kind of going to blow up or I it, knew it was going to blow up the first day after I put Chaosiku to bed. You know, we, we left her where she was going to sleep that night. I, I couldn't sleep. Just all <laughs> these things started going in my mind. But when I took the story back to my colleagues in camp, you know, they said, oh, no, we know the chimps put the, eat that plant. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's, it's not that. We, we, we know that they do this. And I just was kind of dumbfounded. I said, oh, I have, to, I have to convince these guys, too. And they've been looking at chimps for 30 years. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I just couldn't sleep. It was one of the easiest papers I wrote, that first paper. It wrote itself. You know, mm-hmm. It was like someone was talking to me. You know, It was just so easy to write. It just everything came together. It made sense how things should go. And you wrote it with Mohammed. Right. right. Because without him, not, that would, nothing would have happened. He's, he's the man. He's, he's my, you know, I, I owe a, a big debt to him, to mm-hmm. Professor Itani, to, you know, I, I could, list all these people going mm-hmm. back to when I was in kindergarten, probably. <laughs> um, but yeah, without Mohammedi, honestly, none of this would have happened. And, you know, I worked with him for close to 20 years. And around the 10th year, he just happened to tell me that, oh, yeah, we, the Watongwe also know that, that animals self-medicate and we've got many medicines from watching sick animals. <laughs> <laughs> this is great, but I mean... <laughs> I, well, you know, it's good he didn't tell me in the very beginning and I was sure. like, oh, okay, well, that's no, no big thing. So we, we had to, he, he made me work for the information. <laughs> well, it probably, I mean, letting it settle in a bit made you definitely more receptive to it, I'm sure, at the time yeah, and, as well. And it gave me more confidence mm-hmm. and it made me more humble because the more different people around the world that I began to talk to, you know, they all have the same same kind of story. So this study on chimps actually is is this, you know it, it's gotten much bigger, and it it got me back to my interest in in ethno medicine and, yeah. and ethnopharmacology and things. Mm-hmm. And so you know, it's just all everything I've been interested in since I was a kid. I'm still doing today. You know, it's just 
amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still trying to figure out what I'm going to do when I grow up, but yeah, I'll, I'll let uh, that. There's time. There's time away. for that, Mike. Long ways away. <laughs> sure. <laughs> and then, okay, so the self medication aside, and then coming back to the stone handling thing, mm. that's a little bit of an interesting one because mm. earlier you mentioned Glantz, what was the number? 6476. 6476. And for everybody who doesn't really know, that's the, the name right. of a monkey in Arashiyama. Right. Um, Glantz was her great grandmother. Her mother was born in. 64 and she was born in 76 there you go and so through that observation you were able to kind of see an innovation happen and that was before that must have been before the idea of innovations and culture um, existed really in for for non-human well societies or at least it was in the very beginning stages of potato it. washing was was the only of, example of course, we yeah. really had we what we um plas wheat plaster mining and potato right. washing and then right. but that was like 19. 54 when yeah. it was first mentioned in Japan and it yeah. wasn't until 1965 when it came out in English but after that there wasn't really a whole lot yeah. there were the the tits in uh, in Europe right with the milk, with, bottles, uh, the milk but, bottles yeah but so I mean it's safe to say at least that this is kind of in the pioneering stages of that kind yeah. of whole field and with Japanese macaques definitely you know, right there's been a long silence right and then now you, you've had students you've had postdocs who've looked at this stone handling and I've learned all kinds of things, yeah. quirky things about it. Yeah, yeah. I've been very, very lucky to have some really, really nice collaborators. Uh, uh, which one of my collaborators, Charmili Nhalage, from Sri Lanka, has led me to a whole nother ten, more than ten years now of work in Sri mm -hmm. Lanka. It, it introduced me to her culture and her country and the amazing situation on that island. You know, just. Through people, you find new places to, to mm -hmm. do work. Um, and Jean Baptiste Leca came as a postdoc, I think, for about seven years. Mm -hmm. you know, there's just no end to stone handling. <laughs> and now he's doing great stuff. He's got his own students and he's expanding work in Bali and looking at stone handling. We, the, the three of us, we call ourselves the three monkeys. Mm -hmm. um, no evil, no, 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 no <laughs> speaking, no talking, or no hearing anything. Yeah, just, just work, work, work. <laughs> Really a lot of fun with these guys. And, you know, we, we went to Bali and spent some time, and, and that's, he's taken that further. Um, Charmley and I looked at rhesus macaque, captive rhesus macaques. We went to Thailand and looked at, at stone-handling macaques there. You know, it's just, you know, it, again, it goes back to, to some of the earliest interests, how animals mm -hmm. learn things, social learning. Um, now, with the stone-handling, I've got some other people who I'm, beginning to work with we're, we're again looking at natural drugs produced by the body mm -hmm. endorphins and things seeing trying to, to look at ask a different question about mm -hmm. stone handling what what's the physiology behind it you know we spent a long time looking at the mechanisms of social mm -hmm. learning and and studying this behavior for now for 35 years um, and seeing how it's changed and accumulated over the years the, the behavioral patterns and everything but it's, it's all it's all really good because you know we have you have people to work with and they bring in new ideas mm -hmm. and and these friendships lead to, to new places and new new studies, different things. And so the work in Sri Lanka, India, Bangladesh, I mean you've obviously you've been training students and and uh, I guess lecturing a lot too, so encouraging mm -hmm. new students to get right. into the field. And mm -hmm. the work that you're doing now, so a lot of it has to do with um, even identifying some primates we may not really be familiar with genetically and also um, uh, talking about conservation hmm. as well of primates in that area. Right, right. This this whole 
the the work in Sri Lanka um, started off with trying to look at dead parasites for one thing, but 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 documenting actually it, it started just to, to document the, um, as many different populations on the island of macaques mm -hmm. and the two language species as we could because we know so much about those species but only from one site mm -hmm. very long term um, research by Wolfgang Dietrich really nice work but we only that's all we know about Sri Lanka basically Sri Lankan primates is from a very 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 specific locality and the island is so diverse so many different habitats and, and everything so Charmily wanted you know to to, to take on this 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 task of, of training the next generation or the first generation of mm -hmm. Sri Lankan primatologists and that was her dream that's mm -hmm. when she came to me when she got a a, a government scholar a, a mixed scholarship from the Japanese government to come and I spent like six months talking to her over email to figure out what she wanted to do and, mm -hmm. and to find that fire burning in her belly and when I saw it you know I just said you've got a dream mm -hmm. I'll make it mine let's make it happen and um, so bam Sri Lanka it's been more than 10 years and we, we're looking at phylogeography now we've learned genetics from Professor Kawamoto um, ethnoprimatology um, you know it's just an amazing island and and through that I've reconnected with my inner Indian and um, <laughs> have some really good friends and a lot of students in India that I work with and now a student Himani um, Natyal who has just just um, entered PRI as, 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 as a visitor right now, but mm -hmm. we're hoping that she'll come as a graduate student. And, you know, she's in, introduced me to the Himalayas, which, again, has been a dream since I was a little kid. I, I was really into mountain climbing and things from junior high school, and I had posters of all the Himalayas in my bedroom on the wall. Mm -hmm. And I went to bed seeing those mountains, and I woke up seeing those mountains. And last year, I woke up seeing those mountains. Only I was there. <laughs> what what is it with Japanese primatology and these mountain expeditions into the Himalayas? <laughs> so you well, do fit in. Yeah, yeah, must must be in the genes. I don't know. <laughs> so to, to kind of wrap things up, then yeah. I mean, for all the things you've already done, what's kind of on your plate now? I mean, where where are you? I, I, apart from the things you just mentioned, um, right. with Charmley and Himani, and right, yeah, you know, where's it all kind of heading? Well, the next step is within the country with Japanese macaques. Like I, I mentioned, we want to want to mm -hmm. try and non-invasively um, measure pleasure hormones mm -hmm. and endorphins, as well as stress-related hormones like um, cortisol or testosterone, um, to try and and look at the stone handling from another way and see how animals are are mm -hmm. coping and what what they're getting from it. Um, I've got. A fantastic student from Brazil, um, Sayuri Takista, and she's you know introduced me. I can't say that I'm following everything she's doing. She's she's <laughs> amazing with 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 the work she's doing. She's doing behavioral endocrinology, but it's introduced me to a whole new world. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, it's it's such a pleasure to be with with bright young kids who have big dreams mm -hmm. and to be able to help them. So. Part of the, the future is, is, is helping more people with big dreams, which is part of my dream. Um, but there's got to be an, an, another species I can start looking at. I, I'm getting kind of interested in, in langurs all across Asia, working with, with people in, and, and macaques as well. So 
I don't know. Maybe I'll know tomorrow. That's the exciting <laughs> thing about going to bed is what's waiting the next day. Well, there was a, a, a TEDx Osaka event in which I think you closed your talk by saying all these things. Imagine what we'll know tomorrow. Right. Exactly. I guess it applies to you as, as well. Yeah. <laughs> well, Dr. Mike Huffman, thanks so much for joining us on the Primate Cast. Thanks, Andrew. You have been listening to the Primate Cast, a podcast series dedicated to the study and conservation of primates around the world. Brought to you by the Centre for International Collaboration and Advanced Studies in Primatology of the Primate Research Institute of Kyoto University. Visit us online at www.cicasp.pri.kyoto-u.ac.jp forward slash news forward slash podcasts and follow us on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash the primatecast and on Twitter at the primatecast.